Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Nerd Out, where security experts and me uh, come together to discuss the latest security issues facing individuals and corporations. Today, we're going to get right into it. We've got a really jam-packed schedule, so we're fortunate to be joined by another great panel. Some of the names are familiar, and then we've got a newbie on there as well. So let's take a quick moment and introduce um, all of our panelists to the listeners. Uh, most notably, our most loyal listener, it's important to call her out, is Jen's mom. Um, she's our most loyal fan, so we want to make sure she's called out from the beginning. But let's start with our newbie, uh, John. Please take a moment to introduce yourself. Hey, thanks, Dave. Um, my name's John Crossan. I'm a director for Critical Infrastructure. Um, focused on vital services for Gate 15. Uh, I've spent the last uh, little over four and a half years supporting the health sector, uh, working with the uh, Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or uh, Health ISAC. Thank you, Dave. And I'm Bridget Johnson. I'm Managing Editor at Homeland Security Today. I'm also a terrorism analyst and a security consultant. Travis Moran, I'm a VP with Welland. Um, and Welland provides information and risk mitigation services and strategies, uh, primarily around global geopolitical threats to companies and organizations. So glad to be here again. Yeah, great. I, I really do appreciate everyone uh, taking the time out of their schedules to join us. Um, we, uh, we do have a pretty full schedule, so let's just jump right into it. And I really want to follow up on the, the discussion from last month where we kind of ended on, on a, what we thought was kind of a lighter note, just a, a question about whether any of the sports, major sports programs or, or leagues were going to have issues with carrying out their, their league schedules. And we've seen from the start, NBA seems to have done very well at this point, no negative, you know, no negative or positive results. Uh, over the course of their bubble. The NHL has also done that. Both of those are in their playoff modes now. So they've kind of gone a, a, a good third of the way through their league schedule without issues. MLB had some issues with a couple teams, but they seem to kind of put their head down and they're just moving forward. They're postponing games. Um, but the biggest thing, and I guess the NFL is, is going to move forward as well. It, it was interesting to see that the Dallas Cowboys announced that they're going to have fans in their stadiums. They, they don't exactly know how. And as a fan of the Cowboys, I'm interested to see that. They haven't revealed that, that how part, but they want those people there. Um, but the biggest one, and I think that took a lot of, um, at least on social media last week by surprise, was the announcement by several uh, conferences within the NCAA to uh, either delay postpone or outright cancel their uh, fall sports and, and most notably which is important to on so many different facets is the college football season um, which is a significant disruption to a lot of people and a lot of passionate fans I'm I'm a Penn State fan and I'm at odds directly with Travis uh, unfortunately <laughs> but but uh, you know and we also have John who's uh, a big Alabama fan um, and so I just kind of want to kick the conversation off there. Um, John, I'll start with you. You know, what do you think when you see all of these conferences making some changes at this point? It, it, COVID related or, or are we talking safety and security issues? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think all that, uh, thanks for the question, Dave. I think all that plays a part into what we're seeing, of course. Um, 
fingers crossed selfishly, Alabama and the SEC are still moving forward. Um, they just announced Alabama's playing at Missouri um, on September 26th, so that they actually pushed the season back about a month to allow school to get started and things like that. And then the big, uh, the entire season schedule is being announced tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time, so looking forward to that. They're doing a conference-only uh, schedule um, focused on 10 games. Um, along with some other conferences. I think the ACC is still, still going in the Big 12. I did see earlier today, I think Kansas State, their uh, county commission um, has approved them to play, have fans at 25% capacity. So I think the SEC commissioner has just kind of stated that uh, be patient and we'll wait and see. I mean, there's still, you know, over a month, so a lot could change. Um, with SEC and others that have so far announced that they'll be playing, but we'll see. Should be very interesting. I, I'm kind of, you know, what what always scratches my head about this is like, I, and I get the wait and see approach. I'm just not sure what we still need to see at this point, because I, I kind of fall under that. Like, until there's a vaccine, we're either just going to do it or we're not. I mean. The, I don't know what delaying has any impact on. I, I, I'm a little confused by it all. And, and again, I'm not a doctor in any way, shape or form or health official. So I, I'll just defer now to, to Travis. And, you know, Travis, before we got on recording, you'd brought up a couple things about North Carolina as well. Um, it, this is an evolving situation, right? I mean, this is, well, I guess it is really a wait and see how it goes. So what I'm going to give you is strictly opinion, obviously. And, you know, when you're talking about the pro teams, the bubble, the bubbles worked the best. Uh, but as you saw with Major League uh, Baseball, travel, travel is the problem. But the conferences and for the schools, the students are the problem. So my opinion on this is the, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, this was kind of a trial balloon foreshadowing here in my opinion, because I've never bought the it's for the safety of the players argument solely because every time they set foot on the, the practice field, the playing field, and even the weight room, you know, they're risking life, limb, career ending, altering uh, injuries up to paralysis. And, you know, that's, that's, that, that has always been there. So worrying about liability for myocarditis or however you pronounce it, I don't know. I just didn't hold, it, it didn't hold the, uh, smell test for me more so i think what they did was a trial balloon because i think they all recognize that once the students get on campus what's happened at unc oklahoma's having a problem georgia's having a terrible problem is is was where they i all think they see it heading meaning that we're going to cancel classes all online which is what unc did today because of all the spiking and the and the clusters they had and that these these conference commissioners were looking at it or presidents from the standpoint of the community and not so much the school meaning that worrying about, i'll be quick line worrying about liability from the, the athletes i think was less than worrying about so if you have a you know a two to five percent positivity rate in a community and then all the students come back and all of a sudden you're spiking up above 10 and whatnot you've really got some you know foreseeable liability issues there and by Canceling fall sports, I think they were going in the mode of, well, we can show being responsible all along. And that's just pure supposition because I can't, I can't make it any sense of it any other than that. 
Yeah, it, it really is such a really complex issue. I, I mean, it, I, Bridget, I, there's no winners here, right? I mean, there like nobody's going to, I mean, whether they played the seasons or not, I, I mean, there's a, these campuses, I mean, my, my son goes to the University of South Carolina and, and they've announced that they want to do, uh, you know, 25 or 20 to 25,000 fans in their stadiums. Uh, it's a 70, 80,000 stadium, uh, you know, person stadium. So there, conceivably you can do a lot of unique things there. Um, but it, it's, so I, I, I have an interest in wanting to see some football, but you know, when you have all of these kids on campuses and these parties that are, are generating this outrage on campus, it, it's really amazing. So, Bridget, I mean, who, who wins here or does anybody win here? Yeah, I mean, no one is going to be more excited than I will be when it's safe to go back in the water, so to speak. Um, but, you know, how can you do a bubble with college athletes? Um, I think too many people have kind of seen this as a one and done cold or flu, but instead with much still yet unknown, we've seen a disturbing number of people who've contracted COVID who have lasting, sometimes debilitating, sometimes life-threatening effects that aren't just respiratory, but also in the vascular and nervous systems, um, and so, yes, you know, we had that Sports Illustrated article last week that was talking about the heart damage seen in some COVID patients that were young, healthy, athletic, even asymptomatic. Um, we also had a German study released in July that revealed heart inflammation in 60 of 100 recovered virus patients. Um, and then we also had this study out of Italy that followed people who had, had, who had recovered from COVID-19 and 87.4% of them reported persistence of at least one symptom. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about students who, you know, yeah, yeah, you can say, you know, this is a threat and it's out there and you're gonna have to deal with it. But, you know, if you're putting them in an athletics, in a team situation, an athletic situation, where they can not only more easily contract the virus, but also uh, suffer worse effects if they do get it, um, I just don't see how you move forward with a sports program like that. And you know, I love football. So I'm saying that and I love football. So, yeah, I think this is such a, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a situation that's rarely been seen in history, this type of thing. It, it, it's in such an interconnected society as we are now too, where so many things impact one another. It, it really does have some, profound impacts, not only just on the individuals, but on the surrounding communities and, and larger things. And then of course, you know, I know everybody acts polite on social media, right? Yeah, everybody's fun, you know, fun and fancy free on social media. So there's never any fallout from decisions on that, right? I mean, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I, I really wanted to follow up with that. And that kind of goes into a, a, a our second part. I'm, I'm working a weird transition there, but, it, but, the second item for us to talk about is using sports leagues. I, I've been really interested in watching some of these events and, you know, I, I'm a fanatic. I, I love any type of sport. Um, I'll watch um, the cornhole championships on ESPN if, if it's on and nothing else is there, but I, I really enjoy seeing some of that, the stuff. It, I, I've been particularly interested in seeing how without fans, how some of these leagues have adapted 
and taken um, you know, in MLB, it's, it's, you know, you've got the, well, a lot of the things you've got a, the background noise to, to replicate the crowd and you can see almost visualize the guy pressing the cheer button versus the boo button and the, and the loud cheer button. Um, when some things happen on the stage, I also, you know, there, there's, you know, Fox has been working with, uh, the virtual crowd in the stands type of thing, which is really weird is when somebody hits a home run and there's a virtual crowd. And then, and then when they show another scene uh, of the guy running around the bases, the crowd is gone. So it's a really weird thing there, but I'm, I'm working there. I'm working on my transition guys, but here's the question based on what, you know, that some of these networks have been able to do in the, in some of these other various industries have adapted to uh, related to, you know, making things seem normal. Are there any things that we can take away from a security perspective and, and kind of say, hey, maybe we can adapt our, our security model to take into effect how to, how to be better at it, um, how to be better at, at what we're trying to protect uh, and things along those lines. I'll, I'll start the same round of horn again. Uh, John, what do you think about that? Any, anywhere that security organizations can improve or I, I won't say improve, but maybe innovate with this. Yeah, I definitely think there's opportunities, and, and many have been forced to the the uh, remote work. I mean, that changed a lot for companies and organizations, the whole security piece behind that. Um, and, and they had to do it quickly. You know, that was uh, not an easy transition um, for most organizations. So, that, you know, there's been a lot of lessons learned and, and stuff from that already. Um, many organizations have to take forward. Um, I know in the healthcare sector, telehealth became big. Um, you, you couldn't, um, in the whole security around that, the platform, you know, the doctor meeting with a patient, um, there was a lot of effort um, put into that and still ongoing. Um, to, to improve that because that's still continuing and, and probably will be in the foreseeable future. So those are the, the two biggest things I think um, that, that I've seen here. But yeah, it uh, provides a lot of opportunity as well as challenges for sure. I think that the telehealth and remote working have been really fa fascinating to watch. You know, with, with the telehealth, I mean, it's still the doctors are still late to your calls, but they're, they're at least you're able to do it from the comfort <laughs> of your home, right? And so, but no, I, I'm only taking a shot at doctors. We love what, the, what you guys do. But, um, but in the remote workplace, too, I think the security challenges around that have been really interesting. I, if you think about it from an insider threat perspective, you rely so much on baselines and what normal looks like. Um, and now you have the remote workforce where things are not coming in the same pipes for monitoring. It does create some challenges there. Tra Travis, what do you, what do you think? Are there any innovative ways there that, that we can get into any new ways that we can, I know, I know you're a drone expert, but any ways that we have seen, you know, these things been incorporated? Um, I tend to think of it from the, what it's forced a lot of security organizations uh, to do, and particularly some of the sports teams, which we've dealt with some of them, and we found it interesting, is it's a reexamination of policy um, and procedures that, that hadn't been, for lack of a better term, dusted off in, in quite some time, and a reexamination of those. And so one of the things that I would suggest is that, and nearly 
hopefully everybody has at this point as a result of the pandemic, looked, dusted off those plans, looked at them, refined them, incorporated what they've learned, number one, because if you don't have it written down for someone to look at in, in years from now or whatever, then you, you, you failed miserably from that standpoint because you know, part of learning is writing this stuff down. And then the second piece is, you know, tabletop training exercises. I can't emphasize this enough. You know, do the TTXs. Um, there, are, there have been a few, uh, particularly some energy companies that have done TTXs on pandemics because of obviously keeping those key workers at energized sites and, and um, uh, uh, generation plants. And so it wasn't as hard for them to make the transition because they had it, they'd done it, they'd practiced it, and they'd worked out a lot of kinks. They still had tons of kinks, obviously. But by doing those training exercises and having the policy, they were able to refine and get it up and, and moving quite quickly. And I think that's the biggest lesson that I would try to put forth to folks. Yeah, I, I love that, the TTX usage there, because... It, this is these, especially when you're dealing with a workforce where you may have a key leader who may who may come down or succumb to some of the the pandemic or you know to COVID or or any disease or concern, and you need to spin somebody up real quick or you may need to get them familiar with it. Well, if you're not coming into the office, how do you do that? And and incorporating some of that remote um, capabilities and how do you go over those type of things. TTXs are really vital, um, you know, those war, war gaming type of opportunities. I, I really encourage uh, listeners to, to take a look at, at, if you haven't done TTXs, they're really effective, they're really strong, um, and, and they can really try to replicate those conditions as much as possible and kind of throw in those, those unforeseen or or situations that that may arise that you may not just think about when you're writing that policy but you're absolutely right travis take those policies if you haven't done it already you know you're behind because you got to be taking those things off and dusting them off and reviewing them on a, on a really regular basis you know Brid bridget what what are your thoughts on this i you know because when i think of innovative ways for security, I look at somewhat of like strategic deception and, and ways to make, you know, uh, you know, 10 people seem like a hundred. I'll use a Rogue One uh, Star Wars story uh, quote there, um, fan favorite by the way. Um, but how do you, how are there, are there, are there ways that we can, you know, use this fake crowd noise or something to make it seem like our, our sites are more secure than they really are. I mean, what, what do you think about innovation and security in this time of COVID? Well, first of all, they need to lose the fake fans because it's just kind of stupid. Um, <laughs> I agree. I agree. But it, it, what's kind of interesting dynamic Amen. about this is that um, here you have small events and venues um, trying to reopen without increasing their COVID-19 rates. Um, and then if that works, it opens the door for progressively larger venues to do so on a larger scale. And that's sort of the reverse from traditional event security, where if things work in larger venues, they're, they're scaled down and adjusted and applied to smaller venues. But I've also kind of thought of this from the, the point of view where places are going to have to kind of take adaptation cues from 9-11. You know, this pandemic is showing itself to not be a one-off just like the terror threat. 
uh, therefore people are going to have to accept some changes moving forward. So you see that there's going to have to be a big focus on patron education. You know, we see that in traditional venue security, explaining why you're being screened through a variety of mediums, um, changing expectations for the experience and the process, um, relying a lot on messaging, explaining, and in this case, you're going to have to contact contact tracing. I always flip that up. Uh, <laughs> worker safety uh, and education. Um, dealing with you know proper equipment and hygiene but even almost like a see something say something if you see something that's posing a health danger and having procedures for a proper response there and then physical security in this case you know sanitizing the venue having smart entry and exit set up procedures etc so it's 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 kind of interesting to look at this in sort of a um relational way to you know, traditional security that you would do from a physical threat and thinking of, you know, how you protect it from a viral threat. Yeah, I, you, I think it's very interesting. You know, I just read a thing today about um, one of the, Keller Williams is, is holding a, a concert here uh, and coming up and they're doing this pod seating type of thing where, you know, you, you come in, you, there's these assigned areas on this big, parking lot or drive-in theater or, or whatever the venue is and, and you almost first come first serve when you get there you have to go to your pod and you have to sit it's not necessarily a physical pod it's more of a social distance pod away from one another and, and, and to kind of I, I mean I'm I think the ex, the fan experience is just going to have to change right I mean the we're just mm -hmm. going to have to get to a, a, our, our expectations it, and it was almost happening anyways uh, I, like do you want to sit at home in your 75 foot or inch television watching a football game where you can you know eat your own food park your car where you want to and and use the bathroom anytime you want versus paying an extra amount of money to to have those just in-person experiences and and i'm kind of reminded right now of, of disney world i mean they're scaling back their hours here in florida because the amount of fan, people that they thought were going to show up didn't materialize. So I wonder as we move forward, if that fan experience is just going to inherently change um, the way we see things and maybe 75,000 seat stadiums are just going to be a thing of the past. And we're going to have more of these smaller venue type of things. It, it's, it's all going to be interesting. Okay, so now now an abrupt uh, transition. I, I want to talk about a little bit because since we've got John on the call today, representing the Health ISAC, um, or not representing, but being a part of the Health ISAC um, model, uh, I can't think. I, I major flood there. Sorry, guys, but uh, I, I do want to wrap in and talk about the healthcare industry there and the and the threats that are facing this industry. And maybe this is our last topic for today. But John, you know, from the health ISAC perspective, or from your perspective working in health ISAC, you obviously have the health conditions with COVID, but you're also seeing other challenges with, you know, the stealing of intellectual property from uh, nation states. Uh, or targeting, you know, these these health industries, you're still seeing a lot of health um, systems being targeted by criminals or, or threat actors. Um, 
what what are the types of challenges that you're seeing on a on a regular basis that maybe we're not seeing or maybe that that we need to call a little bit more attention to hey i think you're probably seeing most most of what we're seeing just to hit on what bridget was talking on the last topic we're we're seeing robotics in the healthcare industry kind of being deployed um where they're deploying robots to disinfect hospitals um, handle lab samples, dispose of medical waste, things like that, that previously humans have, you know, done in the past. So, so that's one uh, thing I just wanted to hit before we, that's kind of new, um, something we're seeing and moving, you know, probably a little quicker into that than may have happened with it, may have uh, been before COVID-19. But we're still seeing a lot of the same threats. I mean, ransomware, of course, continues. Um, it, you know, the ransomware as a service uh, where uh, groups are targeting IT service providers and vendors. Uh, we're seeing the extortion um, where the group ransomware groups are maximizing their profits by uh, they're both requiring payment for decryption keys and then separately extorting that uh, uh, and for that stolen data. To, uh, from compromised organizations, to, you know, requiring payment to not leak that. Um, ransom demand um, dollar amounts have seemed to increase. Um, the prices seem to have climbed. Um, the same ransomware groups um, targeting health sector that you're all familiar with, the big ones are Evil, Maze, uh, Doppelpamer, um, that continues. What we have uh, seen a little bit more with COVID-19, I think that we need to become more aware of, probably the, the various fraud schemes. Um, a lot of fraud, uh, particularly related to personal protective equipment or PPE, um, where, you know, it's causing huge financial loss. Um, the health and safety is compromised for the, you know, the frontline workers that are working. It's essential for them to have that PPE. And, uh, you know, not being delivered on time, they may order, you know, from a fraudulent company and it not come in, things like that. Um, we're seeing some phone calls targeted to organizations, um, you know, asking or offering a, a gift card for completing a, uh, you know, a home physical exam. And they're, you know, in order to do that, they need to uh, have all your personal information um, so that, you know, that's continuing. And then, we're, you know, the, the mental health, um, just last week, the, you know, the threat of violence, the, the shooting at the Shreveport, Louisiana Hospital. Um, I, I don't know what happened to, you know, to that case, but, the, you know, a gunman shot someone, I think, randomly, um, shot him in the leg. Um, he had luckily, you know, did not die um, from that. And the gunman carjacked. Um, a, a car and drove west and I think they arrested him authorities arrested him about the Mississippi Alabama line right before he hit that so a lot of the same things but you know just just like you mentioned some have, have increased and probably will continue to increase with the remote work um, a lot of our organizations you know have already announced they're probably not going to go back to work until 2021 or there's yeah. a vaccine so dealing with a lot there yeah, I, I, you, you hit on a really good point there at the end about the mental health tax that this has been, that's been impacting a lot of people. And, and Travis, I'm going to throw you one to you here. Talking about mental health and, 
and kind of trying to tie all of this in together where this is now you know middle of august there's a lot of things that people thought things were going to be different than they are now um than they were back in in may or march and in april when this was early settling in you know just again i know you're not a health expert i know you're not a doctor you don't even play one on television but what what you know what do you feel or or do you have concerns about the the mental health weight that is going to be put on people especially you know again i don't want to trivialize this with the the college football season or sports and stuff but that's an outlet for a lot of people a lot of people depend on on a release of watching those things and being put in a, a, a nice comfort zone and now those things get taken away more things get taken away is there a bright side to any of this Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. There you go, Travis. Have that one. How, how's that? So, so I told my wife just the other just the other day that you know once things start to settle down, you know, because you know the real good epidemiologists that that we deal with, my organization, they're really worried about October. I mean, they are. Yeah. But once we get over this this curve, this hump then as we've already seen, I've said that you know we're looking at a you know, a healthcare, mental healthcare crisis in terms of the mental healthcare providers, because it's yeah. that part of it is a, that, I'm glad you brought that up. It is seized up. You are, people can't even get appointments the outside of emergency rooms right now. It's gotten so bad. So it's absolutely, it's manifesting. You're seeing it in the behavior on the streets, uh, just, you know, familial relationships. I mean, it's, it, it, it is, and I think one of the most poignant, um, pieces of that was a data point that the CDC put out uh, earlier this week or last week, um, whereby this same January 1st of 2019 to the end of June 2019, um, 8%, 8% of adults between 18 to 24 had exhibited or expressed, and there's a self-report survey of like six, 7,000 that they do every year, having expressed feelings of anxiety, depression. This year, same period of time, same survey, January 1st to the end of July, uh, this year, 75% of 18 to 24 year olds. And if that doesn't, and, it, and it's, it's a core, it's correlative also in the older generations, but the coping skills are a little better or they've already gone through therapy, whatever, but, um, but it's already, it's correlative there as well. But talk about stunning because, you know, that's 18 to 24 is, is that's really the, you know, the place where you can make a difference and these behaviors get manifested. So, there's there's no question that this is an issue and I'm that is is going to be a need to be have a spotlight on so very good idea to bring it up yeah and, and in my case I'm I'm I've been in therapy for a long time <laughs> but and I will probably continue to be but um little TGA uh, you know too much information Dave right Bridget move that forward to talking about terrorism and extremism you guys, Homeland Security Today published a um, top 10 ways COVID-19 could impact terrorism, something we've talked about previously on, on this podcast and uh, in earlier episodes is how, you know, being in isolation kind of helps feed and fuel these, these groups. You know, looking at the mental health aspect of it, do you have concerns uh, looking at the extreme from a terrorist extremist view? I do. And I actually kind of want to take this back to March when we had that um, 
issue of uh, the white supremacist who was killed in a shootout with the FBI. Um, and he, there was, because he was involved in a plot to attack a hospital. And he said that he wanted to attack high value targets yep. if the government issued martial law and quarantine orders as a result of COVID-19. So I think that a key security concern that will be coming will be with the advent of vaccines for COVID-19. Because in conspiracy theory propaganda, we've seen a definite mingling of coronavirus hoax conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, and anti-government extremists. Um, taking this back again to the August 2019 intelligence bulletin from the FBI's Phoenix Field Office, um, that said, that stressed, you know, that anti-government and fringe political conspiracy theories could be encouraging the targeting of specific people, places, organizations, etc., and therefore increasing the risk of extremist violence. So imagine how this sort of cocktail could be really whipped up when a vaccination program begins. Online propaganda that we've been seeing out there within the past, you know, several weeks has been claiming that officials who participate in vaccination campaigns would be guilty of war crimes. So absolutely, you could see people acting out against not just larger healthcare centers, but I would be especially concerned about smaller clinics, campus health centers, mobile vaccination campaigns or drugstores even offer, offering shots. And they should really be listening to the intel at the time and accordingly construct security plans, which could include more physical security on the site. That's, that's a, an amazing, great point. I, I'm glad to see, you know, we kind of pulled all that in because, you know, everyone's looking at this, we, we hope is the light at the end of the tunnel and it's, it's a vaccine you know, it, it, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But there are a lot of people who are very nervous and very scared and very afraid of what this is going to be, the speed at which a vaccine has been developed, what type of processes they've skipped and, and not done. And plus you have the anti-vaccine elements who, who, you know, they don't vaccinate their, their family members just based on diseases that are well-established. And this is something that's brand new. So I, you can imagine the concerns and and that's a great way to, to tie everything and in there. So, yeah, I, go ahead, Bob. Interject one point. So the epidemiologists, that are, that are many of them, matter of fact, the majority of them, I would say, will are very cautious about the vaccine thing. And that's, I, that feeds in exactly what Bridget's talking about in that this is something that we're not talking an efficacious whereby it's effective for more than 50% of the population is going to be done by this time next year. All of them will tell you that that is just pie in the sky kind of wishful thinking when you're thinking about efficacy and then dosage. So, I mean, that's that that vaccine thing is a it's a it, it is a tinderbox and it is a time bomb. So, um, another great point. Yeah, and 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 I think it's important to point out that the part of security preparedness and, and planning is to make sure that you're thinking not just the close the immediate fight, the close fight that you're engaged with right now. It's what's ahead and, and what's, what are the positives and negatives to each of these? And I really think, you know, it's really great to, to start off here and, and, and have this discussion here. And I, hopefully organizations will take home uh, some of that, that information and start planning and preparing for when this does occur. 
you know, not everybody will respond the right, the same way. And, and what does that mean for your organization? So on, on those happy notes, uh, you know, unfortunately it's not always pleasant news, but on those, on those great discussion points, um, I want to wrap up today. I, I, again, I really appreciate our panelists for joining us today. Um, it's great discussion, great dialogue. So thank you for your, your time. I, I, I do, as we end all episodes of nerd out, um, we have a, uh, plug or parting shot so john I'll, I'll toss it to you anything to plug you want to do follow you on social media or any parting shot that you want to have uh roll tide or anything like that yeah thanks dave roll tide um it was just a <laughs> pleasure thanks for inviting me on here to to uh sit and listen to bridget and travis and the conversation y'all had um glad to be a part of it um, I enjoyed it. But yeah, one thing. So, uh, you know, you mentioned Health ISAC, the ISAC community. I would like to plug that. Um, it's a great, great thing um, for sharing information. A lot of information has been shared. Um, typically, you know, an organization may have six or seven security analysts, but when you're involved in an ISAC, that can become, you know, a couple of thousand analysts all working together. So, I would like to plug uh, one document that the listeners may find useful, and that's uh, Health ISAC. Uh, the chief security officer, along with several members, developed the information sharing best practices. It's a document that can be found on the HISAC website, right on the the uh, landing page at h-isac.org. So thank you very much. Yeah, great, John. Thanks for having you having here, and then we look forward to catching up with the football season as it goes along. Travis, anything to plug or uh, parting shot? Um, nothing to plug. Obviously, if they want to follow on LinkedIn, it's Travis Moran or at Dronin, D-R-O-N um, underscore I-N on Twitter. Uh, my only parting shot is I cannot tell you how heartbroken I am not to be able to watch us beat the team up north again. <laughs> <laughs> spoken like a true Buckeye, Travis. I expect nothing less. So, um, yeah, as a as a Penn Stater, I was look, I always look forward to the Ohio State games um, now. And, and we were going to have a pretty good team this year, too. I was really disappointed. So um, it would be interesting to see. But as always, Travis, thank you for joining us today. Um, and then uh, Bridget, last but certainly not least. Well, thanks to Dave and John and Travis. Um, and I just want to do a plug. Um, our awesome HS Today webinars for law enforcement continue. Our next one on August 26th is on the incel threat. And we have two uh, really good national experts on the subject. So I'm excited about that one. Uh, future sessions include CBRN threats to local communities, uh, man-made threats to the power grid, agro and food supply terror, uh, drone terror and venue threats in the event that we can ever go back into venues. So <laughs> you must tune into HS today for those webinars. Great. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Bridget. I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, Bridget does a lot of great work on Homeland Security today, and, and that whole platform has really taken off. The, the webinars are exceptional. I, I will. Uh, vouch for that for sure. We will have all of this information in this uh, show notes. So um, if you click on the link there for the, the podcast details, we'll make sure we have all of this information in there as well for each of our panelists. Uh, no plug or potting shot for me today. 
I think I probably spoke a little bit too much about myself today anyway. So I do appreciate everyone's time. I appreciate everyone listening, especially Jen's mom. And I hope you all have a great day. And thanks for listening. Take thanks, care. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dave. Thanks.